0: Over the last few years, the US Food and Drug Administration has approved the first interpretive use of direct-to-consumer pharmacogenetic testing. While that's great news, providers should anticipate even more questions coming from patients about pharmacogenetic testing and its role in guiding their current and future medication therapy plans. The good news, Dr. Mackenzie Bevery from Mayo Clinic Health System Eau Claire is here to discuss which patient populations may be best targeted for preemptive pharmacogenetic testing, the recent changes in regulations for direct-to-consumer testing, and what options are currently available for patients treated at Mayo Clinic.
1: Today, I'll be walking through some information regarding the resurgence of direct-to-consumer testing in pharmacogenomics due to the recent regulation changes. Since these changes, we may expect more questions about pharmacogenetic testing, especially in a preemptive manner. During today's presentation, we will describe the difference between clinical and direct-to-consumer pharmacogenomic testing, identify evidence-based patient populations that may have improved outcomes with preemptive testing, and recognize the current available testing available to our patients here at Mayo Clinic. To start off, I wanted to start with a brief background before digging into our objectives today, kind of rationaling the whole theory behind why we do pharmacogenomic testing. Let's say we have 20 patients who are exposed to a certain medication. And let's say 10% of those patients, or in the terms of this group would be two of our patients experience some kind of inefficacy, or even maybe some kind of severe um, drug reaction to these medications. What if this could have been prevented? What if there was some way we could have predicted that these patients may not have reacted as the normal population does to these medications? That is where pharmacogenetics may play a role for our patients and help to predict that these patients may not react to a medication the same way as other patients and maybe prevent having these adverse effects or inefficacy of this medication moving forward if they had had this pharmacogenetic prediction for them. This example illustrates the theory of preemptive testing where instead of reactive testing where we test the patient after they've already had an adverse effect or ineffective medication that instead we would do pharmacogenomic testing up front to rather than prevent further adverse reactions or inefficacy to prevent it from the beginning and prevent any sort of adverse reaction or ineffective medication to the best of our ability and using pharmacogenomics as a tool to help us do that to start off with our first objective Let's compare clinical and direct to consumer pharmacogenetic testing. Clinical and direct to consumer um, testing have two different definitions that are associated with them. Clinical testing is specifically ordered and interpreted by a healthcare provider. Direct to consumer testing is something that is marketed directly to our consumers and does not require the involvement of a healthcare provider. Both organizations are overseen in some extent by the FDA with additional rules and regulations that are put on by CMS. In terms of regulation, they differ quite a lot. Clinical testing is considered a high complexity test. It is something that needs to be developed in a CLIA certified lab for our pharmacogenomic testing. It requires extensive quality control measures and that people um, are adequately trained to actually run the test. In terms of direct-to-consumer testing, this is something that does require a direct approval by the FDA rather than just being developed and run in a CLIA-certified lab. This means that it needs to be submitted to the FDA ahead of time. They do need to go through an approval process and a part of those approval processes not only providing the results of the actual genetic test to patients, but also providing a approved description of how these results would be used to determine the treatment. Unapproved pharmacogenomic results that are shared with um, these patients are considered descriptive, whereas the ones that go through the actual approval process are considered to be interpretive findings. In terms of use, Clinical testing is something that can be used by our clinical providers without any approval by the FDA in our actual guiding um, pharmacotherapy for our patients, whereas direct-to-consumer testing, only some that are approved by the FDA do have interpretive findings, whereas all other ones that are provided that are not approved are only considered descriptive and would require further clinical confirmatory testing in order to be considered to be useful in pharmacotherapy um, therapy guidance. To provide a little bit of background of the recent changes that we've seen over the last 20 years, in the early 2000s um, was the first time that we did see a genetic testing emerging on our market for our direct-to-consumer um, testing options. At this time, they mostly considered recommendations for dietary considerations um, as what may work best for certain um, patients, based on their genetic makeup or information regarding their ancestry specifically. Within 13 years after that, um, during that time, there was a halt that was put on genetic testing due to concerns of interpretation that might be being taken by this. So FDA did ask that there be a halt on all of these and that they wanted the authorization for genetic testing. In 2017, they did approve the first um genetic and medical-related direct-to-consumer um, testing at that point. During this time, we did see the emergence of some genetic um, recommendations that were emerging for our medications that were being put out. During 2018, after these approvals and these genetic tests started coming out, the FDA did put out a warning that some of these claims for specific medications may not be the most evidence-driven recommendations but they did allow certain tests to continue to market these pharmacogenetic findings with that additional warning. Not much longer, only about a day later, they did also provide a recommendation that we should not be using pharmacogenetic direct-to-consumer testing to inform medical decisions without additional testing, such as clinical verification through a hospital lab or something that had the involvement of a healthcare provider. In 2018, at that point, um, the FDA had started recognizing more recommendations that had been coming with genetics and medications, and actually put out a formal statement recognizing some of the recommendations and some of the assertions that were made on ClinVar through ClinGen. On April 4th of 2019, they did establish a requirement for pre-market approval for any claims that are being made by pharmacogenetic testing. In 2020, they did, and additionally, um, start creating more of a collaboration to better publish information of pharmacogenomics and its relation to the actual medications and the recommendations or associations that they were seeing. And this is currently an available resource to um, providers and our patients through the FDA website. And then finally, two years ago, August 17th of 2020, the FDA did approve the first test to offer interpretive findings, specifically for the gene for the cytochrome P45019 for clopidogrel and citalopram, specifically for those two drugs. Okay, so this brings us to our first assessment question. Again, a reminder, you can respond through polleverywhere.com or um, backslash MayoRx, or you can text MayoRx22333 and then text the answer as below. So the um, question is which of the following statements are true regarding direct and or I mean direct to consumer and/or clinical um, pharmacogenomic testing? First answer being testing undergoes the same approval process as direct to consumer testing. All pharmacogenomic testing, both direct to consumer and clinical, is considered interpretive by the FDA. C, clinical testing does not require healthcare provider interpretation. And then D, interpretive findings for direct-to-consumer testing require a description of how results may be used in treatment. And it looks like the majority of everybody picked the correct answer, which is D, interpretive findings for direct-to-consumer testing require a description of how results may be used in treatment. The other answers are incorrect because clinical testing undergoes the same approval process as direct-to-consumer testing, as we described, they go undergo very different approval processes and different regulation from the FDA in general. Um, all pharmacogenomic testing, both direct to consumer and clinical is considered interpreted by FDA. This is not entirely true because there are some pharmacogenetic results that can be published that will are not considered to be interpreted by the FDA, especially in that direct to consumer category whereas clinical testing is considered interpretive as long as there is the healthcare provider involvement in that testing. And then C, clinical testing does not require healthcare provider interpretation. So obviously, um, clinical testing requires involvement of healthcare providers, both to order the test and then for the clinical interpretation afterwards. And the results for the information for these questions was found on this slide that I'm referring back to now. So, seeing that the regulation is very different and that the interpretive findings are different as well. Now, to move on to our next topic, we're going to review some of the evidence that is out there regarding preemptive pharmacogenetic testing. Preemptive pharmacogenetic testing can be motivated from drug-specific reasons for example, testing specifically for a drug before starting the medication and specific patients, whether it be a patient that has the desire to pursue um, pharmacogenetic testing or has family history with medications making them wanting to pursue testing, or even some patients that it might be in the future advised that we do pharmacogenetic testing before trying to identify a therapy that might be most effective for them. I will start with the evidence that we um, will discuss for specific patient populations and what is out there currently, trying um, to help us guide in literature of who we should be suggesting preemptive testing in. One of the main questions that um, we are trying to determine at this point in terms of research is whether everybody is considered a good candidate for pharmacogenetic testing. Here at Mayo Clinic, we did run our own um, our own study, which was a retrospective study about um, some patients that are here at Mayo Clinic who we kind of looked back to see based on whether they got pharmacogenetic results and what kind of re- um, recommendations we were able to make for these patients. And so in total, there was 82 individuals that were included in this study, so relatively smaller, all were considered adults and on less than eight medications. Majority of our patients were white, though there was other demographics that were included in this study, um, with the majority of the patients being ages 18 to 64. They specifically genotyped for nine genes at 21 separate alleles for the genes, as you see listed on the slide. Um, Again, as I mentioned, this was all retrospectively done with the intent to identify medication and gene interactions that led to pharmacist um, recommendations results of this study did that show that 56% of the included participants were offered some kind of medical improvement opportunity based on pharmacogenetic t- results that were given to these patients. The next study I wanted to touch on was another one that asked this question of whether everybody would be able to benefit from pharmacogenetic testing. This next one also um, looked at was a meta-analysis of several different studies. They looked at the um, participants that were on average 40 to 75 years old in these studies with focuses on psychiatry, cardiovascular drugs, and other cross-specialties as well. They did an analysis of five different studies that were associated with hospitalization and the rate of hospitalization based on pharmacogenetic results, and also five medication chain studies that were based on um, whether patients had pharmacogenetic results and if those patients were more likely or less likely to have have medication changes. They had a treatment as usual arm, which was abbreviated as TAU, and then um, pharmacogenetic-directed treatment, which was the PGX arm as well. It was, um, in majority of these studies, they were not blinded to the patients. So that may have made some some causes for some differences between the studies and between um, the patient arms as well. In terms of results, the medication changes were um, statistically significant, and the hospital admissions were statistically significant in their study. In terms of odds ratio, the we had an odds ratio of 1.91 favoring the PGx arm for medication changes changes, meaning that patients who had pharmacogenetic t- testing we more likely to have some sort of medication change or a recommendation that possibly came from having pharmacogenetic testing at that point is the inference. And then hospital admissions, um, we had an odds ratio of 0.5, meaning that we were favoring our treatment as usual arm, meaning that patients that were not pharmacogenetic tested were statistically significantly more likely to have hospital admissions than our patients who did not have pharmacogenetic testing. One thing of note between all of these studies, they did show that there was a high heterogeneity between the sample populations and these findings may be slightly less um, supported based on the samples that they we were based off of, but it is still a statistically significant finding, which is of interest for us. The next study I wanted to talk about was something that's a little bit different than the other two studies that we talked about. Um, There is ongoing studies and um, current studies of trying to target maybe what populations we should be reaching out to first for pharmacogenetic testing. And so this next study wanted to focus on that of what patients would be most motivated or most um, able to have some sort of recommendation based on their pharmacogenetic results. So this last study was a relatively large study having 73 million patient insurance records used between private insurance, Medicare, and Medicaid. They used um, medications and they looked at what was prescribed to these patients and looked to see how many of these medications had some sort of prescribing guidelines through the CPIC, or the Clinical Pharmacogenetics Implementation Consortium, or the Um, DPWG, which is the Dutch Pharmacogenetics Working Group. They looked at these these patients and saw what frequency we were seeing more patients having some medication that was having a guideline on it and that were covered under these insurances and specifically stratified the groups by age and insurance coverage. So they were looking for the incidence of exposure to these medications and pharmacogenetic guidelines and also looked for frequency of high-risk drug phenotype co that occurred in these patients if they did have it, which they did not end up me- reaching a statistical significance there. They did find, though, um, in terms of results, that patients that had one or more exposure to a medication that had a pharmacogenetic guideline associated with it, were higher in patients who had Medicaid or Medicare insurance coverage, which was theoretically thought to be associated with these patients also being more on more medications in general, and also patients that were of increased age as well. So increasing the, the number of medications, increasing the likelihood that they would be exposed to these medications. The most frequently identified medications in these in this study specifically that patients were taking that did have some sort of pharmacogenomic genetic guideline were for pain relief medications and cardiovascular medications. This brings me up to that, as I was alluding to before, that there is currently a lot of investigation into this preemptive testing for pharmacogenetics. And there are two studies that I wanted to highlight that will be coming out soon. Both of them are randomized controlled trials. The first one is looking, it's going to be referred to as the PREPARE trial and is looking specifically at adverse drug reactions for patients, whether they had pharmacogenetic testing versus not having pharmacogenetic testing and seeing if having pharmacogenetic testing is actually helping us avoid adverse drug reactions. We are actually anticipating results of this to be coming out relatively soon with their data um, on the clinicaltrials.gov website saying that the collection was wrapping up on April 1st of 2021, so we should be watching out for that. And then our other study is a smaller study than the PREPARE trial, but it's specifically looking at preemptive testing for patients that are going to be starting antidepressant therapy specifically for depression and looking at if there is some benefit to um, testing these patients prior to initiating antidepressant therapy, um, looking to see if we can decrease the rate of time to response and maybe increase the tolerability right off the bat on first medication choice for our patients that are under um, that have depression. This one is still ongoing. It started in 2020 and they are um, published on clin- clinicaltrials.gov to be continuing to collect results until 2024. So we still have some time before we see the results of that trial coming out. Recommendations for our medications, as I kind of discussed before, come from several different sources. Um, The guidelines that I mentioned before include the CPIC guidelines and the Dutch Working Group guidelines, as highlighted on the first two bullets on the slide. And then we also have additional guidance here at Mayo Clinic through Ask Mayo Expert um, from our experts here at Mayo. And then also the Food and Drug Administration also provides recommendations for drugs specifically if there is some sort of pharmacogenomic finding that they think is significant enough to put on the drug label. Finally, we do rely heavily on our primary literature as this is a field that is developing currently and um, we do need to be trying to keep on top of the primary literature for our recommendations as they do change with time. Um, The CPIC guidelines and the Dutch working group guidelines do their best to keep on top of the changing literature, but obviously, as with most guidelines, sometimes they do get dated, and we do need to be aware of what's coming out when we are making specific pharmacogenomic genetic recommendations. Okay, and then, as mentioned before, um, we do also have medication-specific preemptive testing that is recommended, and I kind of discussed this before when we have the FDA providing recommendations on a specific drug label to provide testing prior to it. CPIC and the Dutch Working Group also provide recommendations as well as our Ask Mayo expert does as well. To orient you to this table, um, this is the current medications and it's relatively a small short list right now that's drug specific, so saying before they start this medication, we do want to consider or we do want to do some sort of pharmacogenetic testing um, to these patients to predict their response to these medications. In terms of recommendations, um, the CPIC Dutch Working Group and FDA and AME provide recommendations for actually testing for uh, quite a few medications as listed on the bottom of the table, specifically for HLA testing. Um, Most of it is ethnically motivated, as well as these um, certain HLA and genotypes are more common in certain ethnic backgrounds than other backgrounds as well. AME also provides additional recommendations for other um, areas where we may consider doing pharmacogenetic testing, as denoted in the blue on the slide. which means that you can consider it, though so it is not required before starting the medication for these patients. And a lot of these are for cytochrome P450 medications, as denoted as SIP on the slide, or UGT um, genes as well, or TPMT and UDT. As highlighted in the studies that I just discussed, 56% of our patients here at Mayo Clinic do have some recommendation that for preemptive tests, based on the preemptive testing that was performed, um, performed. meaning that associations um, and doing pharmacogenetic testing for these, for most patients, is not necessarily a wrong answer. There are some things that need to be considered as well, though, for our patients, whether it is the cost or what they expect to be getting from our pharmacogenetic testing. In terms of pharmacogenetic testing, as I mentioned, we need to make sure we're setting expectations appropriately for our patients. Some patients, depending on their history or their genetic results and what they get as their genetic results may benefit more than others, depending if they have a finding in their genetics that actually has an interpretive finding for our guidelines that we currently have or per the current evidence that is out there. As this alludes to, we still have a lot of evidence building in pharmacogenetics, meaning that there may be some associations that we don't quite understand yet or can't provide a recommendation at. So while it may provide insights for these patients, at the immediate moment, if they're trying to find an answer, we have to realize that This test may not be the end-all be-all to explain why they don't tolerate a medication or why this medication isn't working for them. That doesn't mean that in the future we may not see that this may change. Um, As it is mentioned below, these results are lifelong, so as evidence is developing, there will be new associations and changes in recommendations and strengthening of recommendations relating pharmacogenetics and these patients may, down the line, have better explanations. And then there is other things to consider as well for these patients that DNA, DNA is not the end all be all for how our, medi- our body will respond to medications. And that there are other factors in terms of development in systems and external exposures that could affect how your body works with medications as well. So making sure that our patients are aware of that. Also with pharmacogenetic um, testing, there are some ethical considerations that need to be taken into, into mind. In the beginning, when pharmacogenetics was first started, there was some concern that there may be some genetic discrimination, meaning that patients with certain genotype findings would be discriminated based on, um, you know, they're like maybe not having less success with a medication or a medication group that makes them a harder to treat patient, or that they have a genetic predisposition to cancer or something along that those lines. In 2008, there was a law that was passed to help um, sort of provide our patients with some protections. um, And that was called the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act of 2008, referred to as GINA commonly. This protected our patients with health insurance and employment that they would not be able to be discriminated against. Of note, this does not protect our patients necessarily for life insurance, disability insurance, or long-term care. So it is something to be kept in mind for our patients that are concerned about genetic discrimination. Again, also in ge- um, pharmacogenetics, as I noted before on our previous slide, specifically with the HLA genes, there are certain um, ethnic groups that do have a higher association with certain genotypes that may put them at risk for having a certain gene and having a adverse, severe adverse reaction to some medications. And so it is really important, especially being in America and being in the Midwest even, that we do have a melting pot of different ethnic backgrounds in the United States, and that it is sometimes hard to determine the ethnic background of patients. And so when we are starting medications, especially those ones listed with the HLA, that we do ask about the patient's history and their family history to determine if they are a population at risk, because it is easy to just look at the patient and say, oh, I don't believe you are of Asian descent when they may be and could be at a potential for having that um, adverse reaction. So it's really important while these are ethnically motivated testing that we are also asking our patients and confirming, do you have a history in this area rather than just assuming. it's something we definitely need to check ourselves on when we are ordering um, pharmacogenetic tests. And this brings us to our next question. Which um, patient might be most um, likely to immediately benefit from preemptive pharmacogenetic testing based on age and insurance coverage? So this is referring to that third study that I was discussing before. So the answers are a 12-year-old female on Medicaid, a 35-year-old male on commercial insurance, an 80-year-old female on Medicare, or D, all patients would likely benefit equally from pharmacogenetic testing. Okay, it looks like we have a little bit of a mixed hat here, which I was sort of expecting based on the information I was presenting. Um, So specifically based on the third study, um, the most immediate benefit would be that 80-year-old female because she is the one that is most likely to be on more medications that are pharmacogenomically motivated um, guidance that we have provided for them. Whereas um, if we tested all of these patients, even the 12-year-old female on Medicaid, she is very unlikely to currently be on a medication that has uh, a motivation for testing. Again, we also have to keep in mind, though, with this that um, some patients, you know, if they are going to be started on a medication for preemptive testing, um, that there is a consideration even for that 12-year-old, if she has a history, say, age, and she's going to be starting on allopurinol that she should be preemptively testing. So really, both answers are not incorrect, but based on that last study, the 80-year-old female without any other information is more likely to immediately benefit because she's more likely to be on a medication that has pharmacogenetic guidance on it. Again, um, we do also, um, this this question, I don't want to motivate you guys to not test everybody because everybody does have some consideration for being tested pharmacogenomically. And this is because results are lifelong on our patients. And so even for our younger patients, such as the 12 year old female on Medicaid, she is younger. So she should be considered um, to be a good candidate for pharmacogenetic um, testing potentially because she may have down the line be starting medications that could motivate a good reason to have, uh, you know, changes based on her genetics. And then finally, moving on to our final objective, we are just gonna review some of the testing options that are currently available to our patients here at Mayo Clinic. Before we dig into what those testing options are, I wanted to cover briefly what goes into selecting a clinical um, test for our patients. Why, and the question that I always like to ask myself is why are we preemptively testing this patient? Whether it be from patient desire, Um, Family history with medication intolerances, maybe a history of adverse reactions previously with medications, or HLA-positive testing results. Um, Those are all reasons with um, HLA-positive testing results within their family members are all good reasons for preemptive testing. And again, it really depends on who the patient is and all of that. So specifically when we're referring to maybe they have a family history of medication intolerances, or they have a history with specific medications, that we should be making sure we're picking a clinical test that does include the genes that are specific for those medications that they weren't having a good reaction to. Or if they are going to be starting a new medication and their family has a history of testing HLA positive for that specific gene, it would be a good reason for them to get tested for that gene prior to starting the medication as well. Or if they had a potential to start it in the future, it would be a good motivation as well. For picking those, I did want to provide a little bit of information. We do have a pharmacogenetic associations table available here at Mayo Clinic. I do want to give you one warning though that we are currently in the works of updating this pharmacogenetics association table and our experts are hard at work making sure that it is up to date as most as possible. Another resource um, that you could consider looking at as well is that FDA website as well, where they have the large table of pharmacogenetic relationships with other medications. Um, And they are currently working on building that and making sure that that is up to date as well. So um, using those resources could be very beneficial for making sure that we're picking a panel that includes the medications that are most concerned for our patients. If you're still uncertain and are having a hard time picking a test, We do have several resources here at Mayo Clinic as well through our personalized genomics laboratory, Mayo Clinic laboratories, pharmacogenetic genomic pharmacists, and also a lot of our um, primary care pharmacists that are trained to actually help with some interpretation of pharmacogenomics and genetics to help guide therapy. And they are a great resource to use On the front end when picking a test and even on the back end when you are working with the interpretation and maybe if you struggle to understand what is going on with the testing as well. The the numbers for these different labs are listed on the slide, as you can see above. Mayo Clinic does provide um, our own in-house testing. We do have two panels that we utilize in addition to um, the ability to select specific single gene tests as well. Like if we have a patient that we want to do HLA testing and they only want to do the HLA testing, we do have the capability to only order the HLA testing if that is desired. We do, as I said, have two panels as well. One is a much more comprehensive panel, which is called the psychotropic panel, which includes 23 different genes at 93 separate alleles. Um, And we also have the focused panel at Mayo, which um, includes significantly less um, genes including only 10 genes at 64 different alleles. But um, one thing that I will give a slight warning about is um, not all of the genes that are tested for between the two um, will have pharmacogenomic motiv- motivations. The focus panel specifically does include those nine genes that were included in the study that I mentioned before with the Mayo experience. Um, and so it would be a good option, especially if it's just a patient desire to do pharmacogenomic testing and doesn't have a specific motivation um, based on a medication. Um, despite that. In terms of cost, I do want to give a warning. The costs that I have listed on my slides today are for patients that are uninsured. The prices do come down significantly depending on the insurance the patient is on. And it is something that if a patient is interested in pharmacogenomic testing, that they will be able to. Um, do some investigation through Mayo Clinic to determine how much that cost would be for them to do an in-house test as well, and it does bring it down in price quite a bit. We also do offer some send-out testing as well, which tends to be slightly cheaper after insurance for our patients, um, but it dependent on the um, insurance, they could be very comparable um, coverage at the end of the day. The first one that um, we do offer um, testing through is a partnership with One Ohm. They provide a test called the Right Med that does testing at 27 different genes at 80 different alleles. Um, the cost is lower, being at $457, um, and it is insurance dependent. Um, sometimes they will cover the pharmacogenetic testing, sometimes they don't. They also, through One Ohm, provide a really great portal for our healthcare providers to help them interpret it. It is separate from our actual mail portal, but is helpful along the way. All of the tests that I've talked to up to this point are tests that are incorporated into our medical health record through mail, so through our plumber chart, meaning that they do trigger and currently work through our system to provide warnings when a patient does have preemptive testing already available. Um, results available on our chart to provide a warning that this patient may have a pharmacogenomic interaction with a certain med. The next one, GeneSight, um, is also another one that we do um, offer as a send-out lab as lab as well, providing testing at 15 different genes at 60 different alleles with a focus of genes that are more involved with our patients on psychiat- psych- psychiatric meds. Um, this one does have a slightly higher cost listed of 981 though again this is insurance dependent and the prices can vary greatly from test to test based on what the insurance does cover of note i did want to highlight that the results of this test are not currently formally integrated into the medical record i know this is a project that they had been working on previously though right now it is only available as a report on the um, medical chart, so it is still available through the chart, but you just have to go searching it out. Um, in terms of seeing if a patient has preemptive testing, we do, um, our patients do flag on the storyboard that there is pharmacogenetic results available for patients. And so you should be able to still identify that these patients do have some sort of pharmacogenomic results, even though it will not necessarily automatically trigger for our pati- um, patients who took the gene site test. Still a great option for our patients, so and something to consider as a test as well. And then finally, moving to our direct-to-consumer testing, um, we there are two currently available products out on the market between 23andMe and Get My DNA. 23andMe only provides testing on three um, different genes right now, um, specifically the CYP2C19, DPYD, and sclo one b one The cost is. Um, up front and is published as 199 as a part or larger part of a package test for other genetic um, findings, whether it be the dietary considerations, the ancestry, history, and things along those lines. Of note, 23andMe is the only test that is currently approved for interpretive findings, and that is for the CYP2C19 and only for the specific drugs of clopidogrel and citalogram. None of, the, none of their other findings are considered to be interpretive findings at this point. Get My DNA tests 16 different genes, so quite a few more than 23 in me, at 55 different alleles. Their cost is published at $196. Um, but of note, none of their um, genetic findings have been approved by the FDA at this point to have uh, interpretive findings, meaning that these um, findings would be descriptive and would need to be followed up with clinical testing before we want to use them in the interpretive manner okay so then um here is just a slide describing the difference between the tests the take home that i want you to take from this slide is that we have our in-house and through mayo testing which all can be used for interpretive findings and then we have our other commercial projects um products which are not ordered through mayo clinic and would be um, results that would be being brought to us by patients or patients would be asking us about which would be the 23andme and then also the Get My DNA results as well. Twenty three and Me is the only one with the interpretive finding for one gene for only two specific meds, um, limiting its ability to help us with um, interpreting, um, you know, further um, selecting medications for patients. And then the Get My DNA would all have to be backed up with clinical testing before you want to consider using those results in our in clinic here at Mayo. And then I just want to highlight um, between our in house testing. I, this is not a comprehensive table, including all of the genes. So there are additional genes that are not listed here with interpretation that are tested for on these in house um, and send out labs that are not listed on this table. Okay. And that brings us to our final assessment question. It's a little bit of a patient case. So we have a patient that is starting on an antidepressant for a new diagnosis of depression. Other members of his family have had poor reactions to some antidepressants. He is interested in pharmacogenetic testing before starting a new medication for his depression. And so the question is, what of the below options is the most advisable for this patient? A, order a single gene test, on um, order single gene tests associated with medications that his family members reacted to poorly. Order a clinical pharmacogenetic test panel test that includes genes that are specific to antidepressants. Advise him to purchase the 23andMe test with pharmacogenetic panel. And/or D, pharmacogenetic testing is not appropriate for this patient. Okay, and you guys all selected the correct answer, which I'm thrilled to hear, which means I imparted some information to you guys that is important so the best option for this patient would be to order a clinical pharmacogenetic panel that tests and includes genes that are specific to antidepressants so a is incorrect because single gene tests um while we could target specifically those genes that would be specifically associated with those um, medications i didn't highlight this before but single gene tests tend to be more expensive Um, per gene. And so the patient, while they have a benefit from having those, they would also have some benefit from getting a panel that it might be able to be used for further interpretation, maybe not even in just his antidepressant medications. The next one that's incorrect, which is C, advise him to purchase a 23andMe test with pharmacogenetic panel. Right now, there is interpretive findings only for one gene with 23andMe with citalogram. There are other medications that could be involved. And then finally, pharmacogenetic testing is not appropriate for this patient. Obviously, he is a good candidate as we can consider pharmacogenetic testing in almost every patient that we see if they are interested. So just um, conclusions, consider preemptive testing in any patient, most direct consumer tests require clinical follow-up testing other than the 23andMe, CYP2C19. And then pick a pharmacogenetic test based on the intent of the patient.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.